Amen. All right. I was on vacation last week. My friend Elliot was here. Um, I'm thankful he was here. I'm sure you couldn't tell this just from a sermon, but Elliot is a man not only of skill in communicating God's Word, but he's a man of conviction, a man of courage, and a man of wisdom, and I can tell you stories of all three. So let's just say Elliot is the, uh, if Ben gets hit by a bus plan, okay? Call up Elliot. Uh, He is an amazing man of God, so I'm really thankful for him. Also, thank you for letting me get away with my family last week. I love you guys. I love them more. No offense, Olivia, Davey, and Cal. It was a sweet time, 35 hours of driving to Chicago and back. Kids did good, Um, but it was really good to be with them. Um, When I'm on vacation, uh, what happens is, you know, all your rhythms get thrown out out the window. Like, all your rhythms, for better and for worse. Your your work rhythm goes out the window. Praise God, that's the point. Um, But then also, along with that, your uh, your workout rhythm goes out the window. Your sleep schedule (laughs) goes out the window. And for me, when I'm on vacation, inevitably, every single time, my spiritual rhythms get thrown out the window, too. And maybe that's you. Maybe when you go on vacation, the same thing happens. My rhythm of time in God's Word, my rhythm of prayer, my rhythms of gathering with the people of God go completely out the window. And these things, Scripture, prayer, and community, are three things that we call the means of grace. They're ways that we tap into the sweetness of God to build and cultivate intimacy with Him and grow in Him. We think of them sometimes as God's Mexican food, the three ingredients that he mixes together in different ways, whether it's here on a Sunday morning in the home groups or in your own quiet time with the Lord. And for me, this is, this is a confession. When I lose my rhythms, I lose that rhythm. And I'm coming back from vacation spiritually dry. And the reason why I wanted to share that with you is because I know that it's something that you can relate to. We've all been there, where when we lose our rhythms of drinking from these fountains of living water. These aren't the things that save us, but these are the things that connect us to Him. When we stop drinking from those fountains, we feel dry and we feel dusty. We'll never lose our union with Christ. That's what He did on the cross. He, 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 he buried our sin, and when He rose again, He left it underground. Our union is sure, it's secure, it's not going anywhere. Our communion with Him, however changes. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, pull away from Him, or we can abide in Christ, draw close to Him. And so I'm coming back from vacation, at least when I did, feeling dry and dusty. And maybe you felt that way as well. Maybe you've been in that place in the past, or maybe you're there right now. And if that's you, I have two things I want to say to you. Number one, I feel you, okay? And I think that most anybody else you talk to in this room would feel you as well. This happens. It's not an excuse. But what we know is that when we turn to God, there is abundant grace for us in that place. When we turn back to God, he's not there shaking his head saying, where have you been? He's like that father in the prodigal son saying, at last my son is home. Welcome. Drink. At last, my daughter is home. Come on in. You've come to the right place. The table's set. Come feast. That's the God that we serve. And so wherever you are this morning, whether you've feasted throughout your week or whether, you've, whether it's been years since you feasted on his word and prayer, happy you're here. 
happy that you've come to him to drink. And the second thing with that, though, is that it does take a choice. It does take intentionality to take up his word and read. It takes intentionality to draw together with the people of God. It takes intentionality to drink of his living waters in prayer. But I want to encourage you, make this a priority. I've had to relearn it this week. Confession. Maybe you have to relearn it this week as well. So if you're hungry, come. The table is set before you. Let's feast. And if you're thirsty, come, drink. The living water is waiting. And so what I basically did for myself over the last two weeks was I created a a self-imposed wilderness, right? I was in the wilderness because of my own uh, lack of discipline, my rhythms not being maintained. And here in Psalm 63, and that's where we are today, so go ahead and open up your Bibles there. David is thirsty. He tells us so. He's thirsty. He's not in a spiritual wilderness, though. He's in an actual wilderness. <laughs> the beginning of this psalm, it tells us right there in the superscript, in the title, this is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. He's in a dry and weary land, as he's about to say. And when we look at this psalm, what we're going to, well, what we know actually from the books of First and Second Samuel is that even though we don't know what caused him to go into the wilderness in this particular situation, we know he's not on vacation. He's fleeing for his life. He might be fleeing from Saul. He might be fleeing from Absalom. He might be fleeing from someone else. But he's in the wilderness against his will. He's not there voluntarily. And so in this psalm, what we're doing today is we're going to look actually only at verses 1 through 4. We're cutting this psalm in half. We're doing it in two weeks. Verses 1 through 4 today, part 1, and then next week as we finish up this series on the psalms, we're going to be in verses 5 through 11. So we're in Psalm 63, part 1, that's verses 1 through 4. And as we dive in, we're going to see what David does in his physical wilderness, and it's going to teach us what we can do in our spiritual wildernesses. So let's pray briefly. We'll dive in. Hmm. God, you are living and active. You're working in me. You're working in all of us. Help us turn, open up our hands, open up our hearts, and let you do the work that you want to do. Lord, do your work today through your living word. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. David's in the wilderness. And when I say wilderness, don't think jungle, don't think grasslands, think desert. Uh, Think tumbleweeds, think Tatooine, uh, think a place that doesn't have, I knew Dale was going to get a laugh out of that one. Um, Think a place that doesn't have a speck of green for miles because there's not a drop of water for miles. Picture that as I read this, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. (laughs) Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. All right. It's not hard to see where he gets his inspiration here. He's in the desert and he's describing thirst. He's describing fainting because he so deeply longs for something. For what? It seems like here he's, he's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's in the wilderness of Judah. He's in an actual desert, an actual wilderness, but he's not pining for water. He's pining for God, right? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. 
My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's fainting, thirsting, seeking for God. Now, when I was in the Boy Scouts, I learned when it comes to survival, uh, the 4 and 40 rule. Uh, you can survive about 40 days without food. Some people can go longer, uh, or maybe you feel like you can go four hours, but 40 days is sort of the, uh, the, the starting point where your body starts shutting down. And with water, you can go four days. 40 days without food, four days without water. Both food and water are important. They're both essential for life, but water is even more important. You're on a plane that crashes in the desert, look for water before you look for food. Both of these things are essential for life, specifically for water. So here David is, he's in an actual desert, and he's not thinking, oh God, man, I gotta find water. He's there in the wilderness saying, I have to find God. Why? I mean, you would think that maybe there in the wilderness, a higher priority would be to find water to sustain life. So why does he look specifically for God over water? Why does God take the highest point, the highest, uh, the highest priority for him? Join me in verse 2 through 4. He says, So I have looked, that's past tense, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, that's the temple, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I actually misspoke there a moment. David didn't have a temple yet, but in the tabernacle. He has experienced the Lord, and he thirsts for the Lord. If I was going to put these verses in my own words, I would say it like this. Maybe David would say, I've personally encountered you in your holy house. In the past, I remember that. And I've come to the conclusion, God, that you and your steadfast love are better than life itself. Therefore, my whole life is given to you. God is given to praising you with my lips. Is given to lifting up my hands to you in worship. And so he's there in the desert, and if he doesn't find water, he's going to die. He's thirsting not for water, though it's essential for life. He's thirsting for God. Why? Because God is better than life. That's why. He's got his priorities straight. And as people, as people come to our church, um, we, we do this during our membership uh, interviews as we get to know you, but I've also started asking this question just to other members of our church. Uh, four questions, actually, that I ask to try to get a sense of where we are in our walks with the Lord and what it might look like for us or for you to walk together with our church. Here are the four questions. Tell me about your relationship with Christ. You might find out, well, they're not yet believers, or you might find out that they have been for years. So tell me about your relationship with Christ. Number two, what's your next step of growth? So tell me about your relationship with Christ, and what's your next step of growth? Third question, tell me about uh, how you serve the kingdom of God. Like what, what role do you have, uh, or how do you use your gifts to serve Christ in his kingdom? specifically if, if they're believers. Fourth question, what's your next step of obedience? All right, so four questions to try to get a sense of where somebody's at in their walk with the Lord. Tell me about your relationship with Christ. What's your next step of growth? Tell me about how you serve. What's your next step of obedience? 
And when I ask those questions, what those questions do is it tells me about where people are, where God's bringing them, and how we might walk together with them as a church family. How we might help uh, uh, fuel their discipleship as they walk with the Lord. Now, if I were meeting with somebody and I asked those four questions, uh, well, here, here's the answer David might say, okay? Based upon these, these verses, this is the answer David might say to those questions. My relationship with Christ, well, I've encountered the power and the glory of God, and I've come to the conclusion that He and His love are better than life to me, sweeter to me, more delightful to me, more valuable to me than life itself. And so, my next step of obedience is I'm going to give everything I have to worshiping Him, glorifying Him with my mouth, lifting my hands. Everything is for Him. Now, if I were to sit down with David and hear that answer, how, how would I think? What would I think? I think my, my first thought would be to say, wow, that's a sweet relationship with Christ. Like, what a mature faith. I think my first thought would be to think, man, I, I wish I had a relationship with Christ like that. I wish I would answer the question like that. It's impressive to hear that. It's, it's, it's a target to aim for. This sounds like spiritual maturity. But what I want to do here for a moment is I want to reread the verse that Dale read a little bit ago. John chapter 12. Just a part of it, verses 24 and 25, if we have it up here on the screen. There it is. Jesus says this, and, and think about this one. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Keep this answer in your head, but the question is, what must happen to have eternal life? What must happen to bear fruit? Something has to happen first, according to this verse. When we look at this verse, it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is that the only way for his followers to follow him is to die. Death is the prerequisite of the Christian life. The only way to have eternal life, the only way to bear much fruit, is to lose your life, to lay it down. This is the upside-down idea of the kingdom, this idea that to live you have to die? How does that work? And so here's what Jesus is saying. Here, here's what he means. If, you're, if we're going to say with David, if you're going to be able to say that your steadfast love is better than life, then, man, loving God better than life, it's not the end goal of Christian maturity. It's the starting point. It's not the finish line. It's the threshold. Loving God more than your life itself is how you begin the Christian life. It's how you follow Christ in the first place. To follow Christ is to live the dead life. To die to yourself that you might live with Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Dying to our old selves, laying down our lives in order that we might live for Christ. I think that one of the people in, in the history of the church that says this the best was a, a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He did die for his faith. 
And this is what he says before he died. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is the dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. If we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end of an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He wasn't the first to say that. There's an English poet about 200 years before who said that, and Isaac Watts said it like this, that the wonderful cross, it bids us come and die to find that we may truly live. Let me say this even more provocatively, even more radically. Martyrdom isn't the crown at the end of the Christian life, it's the door into the Christian life. Dying to your old self so that you may live with Christ. Following Christ is costly. And you know what? That makes total sense if you actually think about it. It makes absolute sense because we wouldn't lay down our worldly joys and our worldly delights and our worldly desires unless we found something far more delightful on the other side. Why would we? Why would we give up the joys of this world if there weren't greater joys to be found in Him? If we're just going to use the words of Psalm chapter 63, why would we weigh down our, lay down our lives unless we've found, some, found something better than life? The life that we find in Christ is better than life. Or, David's words, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. So the call to follow Christ, in the words of Shane Bernard, is a call to trade all that you have for all that is better. But for anybody who's been a believer longer than three minutes, uh, you would say, easier said than done. It's hard to die. Um, it's hard to lay down our lives, to give up our desires. Like, we may think in our heads, okay, yeah, that sounds good. I see that in the Bible. I sung so many songs that say that truth, but how do you actually do it? How do you possibly choose God's way rather than yours when it seems like day to day you have the choice to choose your own way? How do you die to yourselves? How do you lay down your lives? In my perspective, this is a really hard thing to do, and I know I'm not alone not only from conversations with other believers, but also from looking at uh, the, uh, the Apostle Peter. Think about Peter in John 13, 37. In John 13, 37, Peter said to Jesus, and listen to this, he says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? <laughs> He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And guess what? That's exactly what happens. Peter says to Jesus' face, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus is like, yeah, really? We'll see. <laughs> and he's right. Because laying down your life is stinking hard. So let's back up. Is the steadfast love of the Lord better than life for you? Let's ask that question. 
really think about that in your head and like process it. How would you answer that question? Is the steadfast love of the Lord better than life for you? Or do you hear David say that and you think, that's a bit extreme, David? Or is the steadfast love better than life for you? And you hear him say that and you think, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll give you my answer. I'll give you the answer that I would assume that many of us would actually give. Is the steadfast love of the Lord better than life for you? The answer we might give is yes. When I'm worshiping him, when I'm soaking in his word, when I'm in silent prayer and sweet fellowship with him, when I'm meditating upon his love, when I'm serving his people, when the truth of the gospel is being spoken over me and when I'm soaking in his word, when I hear testimony of his power in the lives of others, when I'm struck afresh with how amazing his grace is, yes, in those moments, his love is better than life. I can think of times in my life where these things, the, the truths of the gospel struck me so hard, I literally lay down on the floor and cried. And in those moments, the steadfast love of the Lord was better than life to me. It was easy to answer yes in those moments. But oh, that evaporates quickly, doesn't it? I mean, you, you go to work and you're focusing on other stuff. And you're at the coffee pot, and uh, somebody's sharing a juicy rumor with a few other people, and you're, you're there, and you know you shouldn't engage. You know you should walk away or step, out, step back. But you don't want to look like a square. You want to fit in. Maybe you want to preserve your, your reputation. In that moment, very practically, the steadfast love of the Lord is not better than life to you. Your reputation's better than Him. If we're going to be honest, that's what happens in that moment. And there's other times in life as well. I mean, think about times maybe you're on the computer and you see a link and you know what's going to happen if you click that link. You know where that link's going to take you. You know you shouldn't click the link, but nobody's going to know. And you click it. In that moment, the steadfast love of the Lord isn't better than life for you because it's not better than your lusts. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life when we're focusing on him, when we're worshiping, when we're gathered in prayer, when we're soaking in his word, when we're with his people. But as we go through our lives, and this is true of all sin, other things take his place. Whether we're doing something we shouldn't or whether we're not doing something we should, our deepest affection is revealed in our actions. And what we truly love is determined and shown by what we do. And so if you're like me and you can relate to that, uh, I have a hope for you. There is hope for us despite this, because this is a, it's a kind of a hopeless message. Where do we find hope? Here's how we find hope. We find hope because God's not done with you. And here's what I mean by that. I'm, I'm not saying we have hope because there's still time for you to do better. That's not what I said. What I said was there's hope because God's not done with you. This is what we read in Philippians 1.6. Paul says something that is just so salient to this, this place of hopelessness, how we're so enslaved to our sins. That's what he says. That I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Christ Jesus. What Paul doesn't say is that he who began a good work in you has left you to figure the rest out. He says something different. He says that he who began a good work in you is still doing a good work in you. That he's still working. He's still breaking your chains. He's not done. He's not left you to work it out on your own. God's not done with you. He who began a good work in you, when by faith saved you, he put the Holy Spirit to make his home inside of you, and he made you a new creation, and his work's not finished. He will bring his work to completion later, after he's helped you put off what is old and put on what is new. Starting at the day that you believed and finishing on the day of Christ Jesus. Every single day of your life, God moves you closer and closer and closer to the standard that he wants for us, to holiness, to Christ-likeness. And he doesn't make us walk that walk alone. He's not done with you. He calls you to live in a certain way, but he dwells in you to help you live that way. This journey, it's called sanctification. And it's something that he does in us, that he works with us. We're active, but he gives us the strength we need. Because the Holy Spirit that saved you, that made you a new creation, it lives inside you. And the same Spirit, it is the same Spirit that continues to shape you and make you into the image of Christ, transforming you from one degree of glory to another. He's not done with you. And He's not going to be done with you until the day that He brings you home. Praise God. So by His strength, labor for holiness. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says something else. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the dead part. (laughs) I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. Okay, that's also dead. But Christ who lives in me. Okay, we're dead, but because we're alive, but we're alive because we are in Christ. Because Christ dwells with us. And the reason, the reason why that's so essential to understand is this. I don't know if you can, but me, uh, I can't change my affections. I can't change what I love. That's not really under the realm of my control. I can't change my heart, but he has and he's still doing it. The work of Jesus Christ isn't only to change the way that we live. He's transforming us from the inside out, changing our hearts, doing heart surgery in us every time we open his word, every time we meet with his people, every time we bow to him in prayer. We let him continually shape us, continually lead us. We need the help of the one who can shape hearts if our hearts are going to want what he wants. The word that I want to use for that is yielding to him. We sang it in this song, yielding to the Holy Spirit, yielding to the Spirit that He sent to live inside of us and to empower us. And what that means is that when the Holy Spirit comes nudging, let Him nudge you. Listen to Him and yield, surrender to His pushing, to His work. When the Holy Spirit comes and convicts you of sin, listen to Him. Listen to him. Yield to him. Let him take control of your life. Put him in the driver's seat. 
When the Holy Spirit calls you to do something big or small, listen to Him. Yield to Him. Don't just bite down on your belt and try harder. But by the Holy Spirit's power, walk in obedience. Yield to the Holy Spirit. This isn't something that we do just once at the moment of salvation. This is something that the Holy Spirit works in us day in and day out as we learn to surrender, as we learn to yield, to be more and more crucified in the way that we live, or as we learn to live the dead life. We learn to live for Him and yield for Him daily so that Christ might live in us. Why do we do that? Because his steadfast love is better than life. And what we find in him is better than what we can find in the world. Let's pray. God, as I pray, I want to I ask you to help us apply this. Um, I feel like it would be wrong for me to say all that and then to say, okay, so do it without saying, saying that to you. Father, work through the Spirit that you have put in your people to change our hearts, to change our affections. God, you do this over time. You make the things of this world, which were so delightful to us, so sweet to us, become more and more disgusting to us over time. Our tastes change. You have to do that. Father, you call us to do things, and maybe when we're younger in the faith, it's easier to say, ah, I'm not so interested in doing that. But more and more over life, I pray that we would surrender to your your leading, yield to your direction and your nudges, that you'd sensitize us to that conviction, that we'd be less and less able to see sin around us and just say, yeah, well, it's not, it's not a big deal. But more and more ready to turn to you and say, Father, heal what is broken in me. Heal what is broken in this world. Continue, Lord, to disgust us by what's wrong. But at the same time, Lord, continue more and more to help us come and fall before you at the foot of the cross, knowing that you, Father, who began a good work in us, will, will not stop. You will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus, and you will work it in and through us every single day. Until then, Lord, help us yield to you and your spirit. And I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.